I do think there is like a first step where we all need to say, okay, can we have an openness when people come to us with anger and concerns and criticism and attacks? Can we have an openness to engaging those conversations with a humility and gentleness that we might not have otherwise? You want to you you continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse with cops? With millions of downloads, you've likely already heard of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, a podcast about the abuse of power in a Seattle church. But now that the podcast is over, what does its creator, Mike Cosper, think about power? And how did he steward his own cultural power in the midst of telling the story about the abuse of power in this church? Welcome to Everything Just Changed, where we envision a post-culture war church and equip leaders who just can't even anymore. Well, welcome back to Everything Just Changed. We are in the middle of a series on power, which has become such an explosive issue, both in our cultural moment, but also in the church. And so today we are really excited to be talking with Mike Cosper about his podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. If you haven't heard The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, there's probably zero chance that you're listening to us right now. And so <laughs> we're not going to as much dive into the, the content of that as much as, as the podcast itself, because it's really a case study on what it looks like when power corrupts, especially in the church. Uh, so Mike, we are so excited to uh, be talking with you today. And just to get us kicked off, I, I would love to ask you, you know, of all the stories that you could have chosen to tell, why pick this one? Yeah. First off, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm excited to talk to you all. I, there's there's a few reasons. I mean, it was kind of several things came together that that made it make sense. One was um, simply that I knew the story a bit already. Um, I was, you know, in my early 20s as, as Driscoll was on his rise. I was part of the young, mm. restless, reformed movement. He was a celebrity in my tribe, and I watched it all happen in that sense. Um, I also had connections to the church. We, Our church was part of uh, Acts 29 from about 2004 to 2010. Um, 2010 was when things started to get pretty off the rails in, in certain ways with, with Driscoll. Um, we also had our own kind of vision for how we wanted to do church planning, and we left. But during that time, I got to know some of the folks at Mars Hill, um, some of whom were on the podcast, people like Joel Brown, Tim Smith, as they, you know, particularly with a few of them, as they experienced that collapse. Um, and in a few cases, as I, as I connected with them years later, mm. um, I kind of heard the stories of the aftermath in particular and thought mm. that was really compelling. Yeah. Um, but I would say as much as anything, you know, you could you could go through all the different case studies of pastoral failure. And one of the things that makes Mark unique is that he seemed willing to say things out loud in public, even from the pulpit, mm -hmm. um, that expose some of these dynamics in unique ways. You had all kinds of tape to tell the story and, and to really hear it from Mark himself when he's mm. in the pulpit talking about how he wants to beat up his own elders. Uh, and so, I mean, but there, there's also, I mean, the topic of power has become so, you know, relevant at the kind of top of mind um, especially on social media, especially in, in just in the cultural moment that we're living through. I mean, to, that, that's got to be a part of why this story is resonating. 
yeah, I mean, we really, um, I think what was clear for myself and, and some of the others at CT, Tim Dalrymple, Eric Petrick, we all felt like there was a, there was a real sense of relevance to the idea that power in the church, abusive leadership in the church was, mm. is a plague. I mean, mm-hmm. I could probably, and, and probably the three of us could, could quickly come up with, you know, a dozen or two dozen names of people who've either resigned or been pressured to resign or been fired from, from pulpits, not because they had affairs, not because of substance abuse, not because of money, but because of bullying, domineering, Mm -hmm. um, character, not befit an elder. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it made such an important story because again, even though Mark in so many ways is an outlier as a personality and a, and a character, um, the phenomenon uh, is not an outlier um, for for many people. And one of the things I actually really appreciate it, and I think you made this point at least a few times over the course of the podcast, was that this is not just something that happens in really big churches. It's also something that happens in really small churches. And it's, you know, size makes the the damage at scale significantly greater, but it's not like size is the problem or the reason why it happens one way or another. So that, yeah, that makes it a, a surprisingly effective template. And I appreciate how you brought that out. Hmm. Thanks. Yeah. I'm kind of curious about, um, I'm just curious about the kind of the other dynamic. I mean, you kind of asked the question, who killed Mars Hill? But but what is the, what is it about that sort of leader that draws people to, uh, to himself? And why did people follow him? I mean, it didn't seem like you went into answering those questions to the same extent you have thoughts on Mm -hmm. why would somebody, I mean, it's so easy now to turn around and look and say, man, that was a, a toxic (laughs) environment, but there's tens of thousands of people showing up every week. Yeah. So I would say, I think the answer is different depending on kind of where you sit in the organization and where you sit in the history of the organization. Um, you know, I, I, I was talking to a, to somebody about this the other day and, and they were saying, um, and, and frankly, it's one of the questions that kind of drives me nuts, but I also recognize like, it's a question that we need to deal with. And we, we, we have some plans to deal with it on a bonus episode too. Um, people kind of saying like, how did this guy get away with this for so long? Or how mm-hmm. did kind of the, similar to what you were saying, like, how, why did people stick with it, not see yeah. it, whatever. And I think there are two sort of weirdly parallel and polar dynamics that were at work at the same time. On the one hand, there's a lot of what you heard on the show in terms of Mark and and Mars Hill made you feel like this is, you know, this is the only thing happening. God's Mm -hmm. blessing here is unique. And if you leave, you know, you're dead, you're shunned, you're cut off. Your relationships are, are kind of cut off. Um, that that's true for a lot of church leaders and a lot of churches, um, and and it's not even necessarily, or I should say, it's not always malice. It's often in the name of the mission. We only do church. We only do Mars Hill, and mm-hmm. so when somebody leaves, it's like, well, good luck to him. I got to stay focused, quote unquote, on the mission. Um, and it's just another example of sort of, um, you know, other priorities uh, uh, running over people. But the other thing I always tell people, you know, I, and I've had this experience because I, in those Acts 29 years, I had a couple of opportunities to sort of be in the room with Mark. 
I always tell people who 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 kind of say like sort of dismissively like this guy just seems like a punk. Probably maybe one in twenty people that I've spoken to who knew him had that kind of gut response to him. Um, the other nineteen didn't, mm-hmm. and most of us would be in that nineteen because if you walk in the room with Mark, if Mark walks in the room, he has a charisma, he has a presence, he's funny, he's intuitive about people. He could be profoundly encouraging. Um, you know, we, we heard story after story of acts of generosity with people, with pastors especially, um, struggling pastors, struggling marriages. Um, you know, we, you heard on the podcast stories about him and his genuine heart for single moms. Oh, so yeah. those kinds of things, those, that kind of human element is, is always a part of these stories. Um, mm-hmm. And I've heard similar kinds of Stories about people like James McDonald and Bill Hybels. I mean, that's the complexity of these things is that sort of where you stand um, determined what you saw. And for a lot of people, they saw that that loving, charismatic kind of pastoral presence. Brad and I worked together in a church plant. I, I planted a church in Orange County. So like we, we kind of get that like church planner hustle. And so much of the story, as you told it early on, is kind of that where it, he's He's planting in Seattle in this place where it's kind of like nobody thinks you're going to plant this, you know, evangelical church in Seattle. And he's hustling and he's he's edgy. He's willing to say stuff that people aren't willing to say. He's willing to speak into issues in really kind of poignant ways. It seems like in some ways there's almost this turning point when it, when, he, when he changes the bylaws to consolidate power. Mm-hmm. I mean, did, did that strike you as like that's when things really go from scrappy startup to abuse of power um, was, I mean, maybe the question is like, why did people recognize that in, in the, in the moment? And, and why didn't, why didn't anybody stand up and say, Whoa, Hey, like we, we can't cross that line at that point. Right. Well, I mean, Paul Petrie and Bent Meyer stood up um, (laughs) and Mm. paid an enormous price for it. Right. Mm. Yeah. I, I think again, it comes back to, it comes back to something that's kind of ineffable if you haven't experienced it, which is the same character trait that makes Mark or a leader like Mark able to walk in a room and very quickly win, you know, the entire room full of people is identical to the character trait that when he walks into a room and is filled with rage makes everybody get in line. Mm. Um, So there's, you know, some people have made the comment that with with Paul in particular, he kind of made an example of Paul, um, and because Paul was the one who just kind of continually said, you know, as he as he lost his eldership, as he was put under church discipline, as they removed them from members, as they told the church, shun them, treat them as unbelievers, don't talk to them anymore unless mm-hmm. they're in repentance. I mean, it destroyed their lives. It destroyed their families' lives. It destroyed their children's lives for a long time. Hmm. There's a power. It's like the mob. There's an implicit power in those actions that yeah. that creates a certain kind of order, um, both in the fact that in the other people in the room are like, well, if I step up to, you know, to to defend Paul, um, am I next? You know, man. So I wanted to ask, like. Wh- you know, we're, we've kind of been focusing on a lot of the like psychological dynamics and spiritual dynamics with the power. But I, 
I was so fascinated with some of your analysis around the cultural dynamics. Um, specifically, dude, I want to thank you. If only, if all you had done was episode two, it would have been worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, the one entitled uh, Boomers, the Big Sort, and Really, Really Big Churches. Um, what I appreciated about that one is y- you painted this picture of kind of the rise of Mars Hill being very much a uh, kind of an evolution, but still the same species of the boomer uh, focused sense- seeker sensitive movement, except it was the Gen X kind of flavor of it, even though there was a kind of an, uh, an anti-vision, like a reaction early in the early years that Mark had uh, toward, you know, growth models and everything. Um, but the question that that like left me with that, I'm just like, oh my God, Mike, please, please answer this. Surely you're going to come back to this at some point and you never did. And so this is my like selfish <laughs> opportunity to ask, um, holy crap, if that is actually true and accurate, which I agree wholeheartedly, um, unless you didn't intend to paint that picture and I'm wrong, but, uh, I don't think I am. How in the world do we like, I'm one of those, uh, older millennials, geriatric millennials that you, we were talking about before we hit record. And um, how do we not just do the next generation's um, young, restless and reformed or, or Mars Hill um, approach? Because when you uh, illustrated the dynamics of like all of the values, the cultural values that Gen X has, you saw writ large at Mars Hill in ways that were like, resonated with the culture, but maybe was not distinct enough from it. So how mm-hmm. do we, how do we learn from that and not just keep perpetuating this intergenerational anti-vision cycle? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons we didn't come back to it is I don't know that I have the clearest answer. You know? <laughs> Appreciate uh, that honesty, but I'm also disappointed. <laughs> also, you can only say so much in 17 yeah. and a half hours or whatever. <laughs> sounds uh, like a lot, but yeah, I yeah, get it. Yeah. No. Um, I have a couple of thoughts on this. I, I had a conversation with um, with someone a, a while back who was listening to the podcast. It's a pastor of a very large, you know, five figure, um, you know, attendance church. Um, not an Acts twenty nine church, like not somebody that is connected to the story in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was kind of just processing all of this because obviously he lives in that world, you know. Um, this m- massive church, lots of expansion, multi-site, the whole nine yards. And um, he was like, you know, it's just so hard having lived in this world for so long, you know, from the time he was, he's like, from the time I was in Bible college, w- these were the things we were taught to measure. Like how many baptisms did you have this year? How's your attendance doing? How's your growth? You know, how's your financial, uh, how are your finances giving, you're giving, growing, et cetera. Um, and it's like, those are, like those are the metrics. Like, what are the other metrics? And I, we we talked about it for a while, and and I I didn't think of it at the time. I wish I'd had it, in, you know, in in my hip pocket and for the conversation. But, you know, I really think about like, okay, well, what what we're measuring is so peripheral, oftentimes, to what really matters in the spiritual life for individuals. So yeah. what I mean is like. The fact that someone shows up on a given Sunday morning is not like a life and death crisis, um, unless you've bought into a pure, you know, Wesleyan revivalistic understanding of what happens at church on Sundays. Um, instead, I think you know, and and, and I, we went back and had a, I went back to him. We had a conversation about this. I said, like, what if you just for a year said, hey, let's 
create a success measure for our church. And it's the, the whole measure is how many times did a pastor, a community group leader, a staff member um, show up uh, and, you know, to pray, to be present, to care on somebody during a, you know, a funeral, um, a hospital visit, the birth of a child, um, a, a moment of crisis. Like, what if instead of the metrics being, you know, like the, the ABCs, attendance, building, and cash, the, the metrics are, are we able and willing to show up when, when things really matter? Um, because one of the things, you know, one of the things that I, I, I read and uh, in the process of making the podcast is lots of people talked about, you know, going through seasons of crisis and feeling like, well, the church didn't care. And that's why, that's why I left that church and went on to, you know, whatever the next one is. Um, and it's often part of deconstruction stories is experiences of crisis where the church seems to not care. Um, now that's a glib answer, right? And it's a really glib answer for church planners because church planners have to, there has to be a church to show up to, <laughs> you know, in their lives. But, yeah. but um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I don't know that that's maybe, if that's glib, then I'm, those are not the metric. Those metrics are not why most pastors or church planters want to do what they want to do anyway. So I don't know that many would experience that as glib. I, I, I think, what strikes me is that the way you're talking about this is that like you're actually highlighting one of the places where we were we the church the evangelical church has been too syncretistic with the hyper individualism of our culture that kind of measures success through achievement as opposed to like like in a quantitative sense instead of a qualitative sense mm -hmm. and you know the quantitative is still important but if it's the only thing mm -hmm. then or or even the thing that that happens before qualitative as opposed to um, the result of uh, the, the qualitative fruit being born, like the fruit of the spirit, then that sounds pretty individualistic and not terribly biblical as, mm -hmm. a, as an approach to discipleship, never mind our, our approach to church planting. Um, yeah. And that's one of the things that's like super interesting to me because the, one of the subtext of the entire podcast was this idea of, of authority and, and the context of that radical self-expressive individualism. Um, and so there's this kind of constant back and forth between like what's actually happening versus like people's experience of what is happening and, and whether right. that experience is the objective reality. And like this tension um, is just throughout the entire podcast, like every single episode, mm -hmm. you can feel that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think my, one of my questions is just like, as someone who's like, Gosh, I can imagine you're just saturated in that tension. What, are, what, are, what is your takeaway after having gone through that around especially spiritual authority, having seen it ha like so flagrantly abused and also having a deep empathy and appreciation for people's wounds as a result of that? Mm -hmm. How does the pendulum not swing just hard in the other direction? Where, do, where, how have you kind of like processed mm -hmm. that? Yeah. Uh I mean, just to be honest, I don't know that I have like strong like principles to sort of articulate and defend about sure. that at the moment. I mean, I can, I can clearly, like, I can definitely say like, I totally believe in spiritual authority, pastoral authority, um, as, as a, as a principle. And yet like what I always kind of want to challenge people to think about is, um, who in your life spoke into your life in a meaningful way 
from a positional authority, mm. purely positional, and not a relational authority. Do you know what I mean? So in other words, like, like w- one of the best examples of this that I always think about, and it's like, I know it's going to upset people because I'm going to use a military metaphor here. But if you've ever seen the show Band of Brothers, um, oh, yeah. like I urge every everybody needs to see Band of Brothers. It's It's so incredible, such an incredible story. In part because I just think like as much as so, – so first of all, I think evangelicalism has a profound problem with fetishizing leadership. Um, it's, it's a language. It's a dialect. It's a marketplace that's been going on for a long, long time basically saying, okay, we've got to figure out kind of leadership and what leaders do. And what's remarkable to me when, when you watch Band of Brothers, like head and shoulders, the clearest example of, of just a, you know, an amazing leader is Dick Winters. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dick Winters, with one, with the exception of one moment in the entire series, never exerts, uh, a, n- never expresses authority purely from a positional standpoint, meaning he never appeals to his rank as a reason why anybody has to, you know, should do what, what he calls them to do. He doesn't have to because they know that in any given situation, he either already was the first guy, you know, running into fire, running into danger, running into whatever, um, or that, or that he would have been, he had, he had earned that right, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things when I think about pastors and I think about churches, like that's, that's one of the dynamics where I start, I just, I just want to sort of, my, my, the question I want to pose back to pastors is, okay, how are you earning relational authority through your loving presence, through your sacrifice? How are you building trust and confidence so that when a crisis shows up, you know, when a problem shows up in somebody's life, when they need to be confronted in their sin, um, there's relational trust and confidence so that those words are received in love Mm -hmm. and not, not, not again, simply through like, well, I'm a pastor. You have to do what I say. Um, at Mars Hill, there was a whole lot of positional expression of authority. I'm the pastor. I'm in charge. Do what I say. And that was up and down the organization. Um, mm-hmm. Something a lot of people kind of spoke to the regrets of as well. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I wonder, like, maybe a different language to use would be positional versus pastoral authority. Because the the going first by example you're talking about with Dick Winters, like, has to be a mutual submission to the spiritual authority that is the Word and the broader church, right? Mm-hmm. And and if if you are exempted from that, that is a reliance on on a on a positional authority that, yeah, I agree, turns really problematic. But it's like I think the challenge then is, um, mutual submission to a greater spiritual authority applies still the movement of, of a submission toward that. And that's a really hard pill to swallow when the only way it's been defined and, and everyone's experience of that is merely the positional kind. So, um, well, that kind of, that actually tees up Bryce, Bryce's next question here, because this is, this is something we're really wrestling with. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and I'm, I'm almost kind of curious about the inverse problem. I mean, it, it, Gosh, I mean, I, I wonder to if if like the social media, uh, let's say dynamic is almost a reaction against that where there's no positional authority and 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 isn't. But we can shout down anybody and cancel them. Positional authority is 
It's maybe not awful, <laughs> but 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 positional authority alone. And so, okay, so we're gonna I'm gonna kind of tip tip my hat or Brad in my hat because we're both we're both Presbyterian pastors. And I, I heard you uh, in another context, I think, say, Mike. Now, I'm not saying everybody should be a part of a denomination. Okay, Aren't you? But, <laughs> but, like, but shouldn't we? Yeah. <laughs> um, or or why not? Because I mean I. I I mean, I could just say from experience, I've seen um, positional authority, not alone, but there's there's position and relational authority in denominations. And I've seen that work really well where there, there are leaders that are abu- uh, abusing their power or accused of that. And there are structures to investigate that and to deal with that, um, where it it's just seems pretty clearly in, in the Mars Hill story that people there were red flags going up but nobody had the ability or the authority to you know, mm-hmm. to, to to discipline mark i think is mm-hmm. you know the long and short of it so so i guess why aren't denominations the solution to a lot of this well uh <laughs> robert schuler was a member of a denomination um gerardo marty's written about this actually in his book on the crystal cathedral it's it's I would urge people actually, if, if especially if you liked that chapter uh, or th- that episode of the podcast, get Marty's. He's the co co author. I can't think of the name, um, but but if you look for him in in Amazon, M A R T I, it'll be the first one that pops up probably. But he wrote a book about the Crystal Cathedral, and and he was part of the Reformed Church of America. Um, and you know, once he became a phenomenon, like a media phenomenon, um. You know, he was drifting theologically, you know, far left of the denomination mm-hmm. very early mm-hmm. on. And they they couldn't curtail him because they they were in a position where they were they basically made the choice not to curtail him because they knew that his influence, his power as a celebrity, um and as a as a as a pop culture presence was more powerful than their, you know, than their strength as a denomination. And that they would be as damaged by any kind of fight as, as he would, if not more. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, so a couple of comments though, generally, I do think denominations can be a great deal of help. I think what Schuler illustrates is a broader problem. Something I know Bryce from, from talking to Ashley that you're, you're probably very sympathetic to. You'll probably get excited when I say, when I even say this is like, we, it's a failure of institutions, <laughs> Right. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. one of the first kind of outstanding examples of that in a religious way, which is that the institution became mm-hmm. a platform from which he was able to plant the church, become famous, and then sort of too big to fail. Um, you know, Yuval Levine mm-hmm. has written about this, you know, um, time to build one of, yeah, one of the most it's important fantastic. books in the last few years. We have a whole bonus episode coming about this. I got to sit with Yuval and talk about it. Um, <sighs> Yeah. yeah. Wow. I can't wait to it's, see it's, that. It's, it's a great conversation. And I think like that to me, that gets to the issue, which is if the institutions themselves don't have formative power, um, then, you know, then they aren't necessarily protective. Um, I mean, gosh, you see that up and down in the Catholic church, right? I mean, the, the corruption inside the organization, they've, they've chosen not particularly when it comes to high profile leaders and priests. So, so the other comment I was going to make is kind of the funny story, which was, um, and I haven't decided whether or not I'll use the clips in the way I'm, I'm talking about here, but 
I interviewed several people about some of these very questions, like what's the solution, right? Yeah. And I talked to a Baptist, and the Baptist said, well, the real solution is uh, denominationalism. Denominationalism is the key to holding a leader like this accountable. Um, I talked to an Episcopalian. You know, I what's just the, want to clarify, what's a Baptist solution? said denominations are the solution? Sorry, no, not denomination. Um, congregationalism. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay, yeah. that makes more sense. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, the Presbyterian I spoke to said, well, you need, you need good elder leadership and accountability. The Baptist said it was a, you know, real congr- functional congregationalism. And the Anglican I spoke to said, like, we need to decenter, you know, the pastors and focus on, you know, the, the table and the liturgy. Um, you know, all of which is like, it's great. What it reminded me of, though, is, um, you know, a Dallas Willard quote where he talked about, he said, you know, if you if you really boil down any political philosophy to its purest essence, almost any of them would lead to utopia so long as everybody in society obeyed the Ten Commandments. And therein lies the problem, right? Um, that's where I think you, you know, there is no foolproof solution to any of this except for a community of sort of mutual trust, mutual submission, mutual, you know, pursuit of the spirit of God. And when we see elders and pastors who are flaunting the, um, the biblical characteristics of an elder, um, man, every alarm bell in the world should go off. And if we can't vote them out with our votes, we vote them out with our feet. We leave. Um, And so I think that's the, I think that's the only thing that's actually an ultimate sort of functional solution. Yeah. So there's no, there's no like silver bullet. There's no, just follow these three steps and we won't have, you know, leaders abusing power in the future. I mean, how hopeful are you for the future of evangelicalism um, in light of that? (laughs) And uh, yeah, I mean, because in some ways it seems like this, uh, the, like the Mars Hill story is almost like the the product of what of what the evangelical industrial mm-hmm. complex produces. Yeah, I'm, I have a couple thoughts. I, I guess on the one hand, I mean, evangelicalism is and and always has been a celebrity movement in one sense, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the kind of founders of the movement were were very much celebrities. Billy Graham, you know, big time. I mean, Charles Finney um, before that. Yeah, I mean, and. Yeah. Um, so, and yet, like, you know, sort of the character of Graham, the bravery of Graham, you know, you, you listen to his, um, you know, his talk, there, there was a sermon he gave at a big youth rally event uh, in front of like 100,000 people in Dallas in the early 70s. Um, and the, the courage of, of what he spoke about in that, in that, in that sermon where he, he talked about race, he talked about war, he talked about addiction. Um, um, he talked about, uh, ecology and the, the destruction of the environment and stewardship of the environment. Um, this is Billy Graham circa 19, like 72, something like that. Um, to me, those are, those are roots worth being really proud of. So, so it makes me not want to abandon the word and abandon the movement. Um, am I hopeful? I, I think there's always reason for hope. Um, you know, with every death, there's a resurrection and in the church. And um, I do think we're in some kind of reckoning moment in the church, but we're also in a reckoning moment as a culture. Um, people are being pushed to their very, very limits. And 
I think some of the sort of cultural, I don't know what you'd call them, but something's breaking and I don't think it can last. I don't think the kinds of extremism we're seeing can, can sustain for, for too much longer. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So I'm curious about kind of from a slightly different perspective about like your role in, in this podcast, because, um, you know, you, you referenced Ashley, my, my wife, uh, couple minutes ago, I know from your conversations with her, um, you know, she kind of related to me at one point, you saying something to the effect of, you know, if I really knew how to grow a podcast, like <laughs> I, I'd be doing that. <laughs> so I'm guessing, or, and, and you've done that, right? But but early on, when when the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill comes out, uh, you, you probably, you know, you're hoping, but you had no idea that it would become as at least numerically right. successful as it was. I'm assuming by the time you get to like episodes three and four, uh, you have a pretty good sense that large numbers of people are listening. And so it, I, I'm so uh, just curious about that dynamic. At, at this point, you're kind of in this like dual relationship situation where you're on the one hand telling the story of the abuse of power in this church, but now you're also stewarding the power of, of that sort of platform and audience yourself. And so, uh, and, and I mean, even just thinking about what you just yeah, said that, you know, evangelicalism has all, always been this kind of celebrity phenomenon. I mean, you're, you're, you're publishing this out of Christianity today, which is a big part of that dynamic. I mean, Billy Graham was one of the founders of Christianity today. And so I'm just interested about how did you process that reality as you continue to tell that story? Yeah, I, I think, I, I think it worked in my favor in a weird, like in a, in a, in a good for my soul kind of way, um, that all this happened during a pandemic and I couldn't leave my house and go anywhere. Right. I mean, I literally made, you know, the entire podcast from, from my home office. Right. Um, because it was from beginning to end. Uh, I think I had one interview face to face, uh, with somebody who happened to be in town. And so there's something about kind of living inside of a, a pretty isolated environment. Um, we live next door to some of our very best friends and they're not impressed by me <laughs> at all, you know, um, which is, which is, which is wonderful. I mean, it's, it's that experience of kind of community around you. Um, and I'll say this too, I think, probably the first couple of months um, I spent a lot of time following the online chatter and, and really getting drawn into the online chatter um, for a variety of reasons, I think. Um, and then I had this kind of breaking point in, in sort of mid, mid August, early August, something like that, where I just realized like, number one, it's bad for my soul. And then I got really scared of letting that chatter tempt me to shape the content, to react to it. Mm. Um, and so it became more and more important to me at that point to say, um, man, I need to resist listening to that, both the praise and the criticism and do my very best to like, listen to my editors, listen to my executive producer, Eric Petrick, um, listen to the people whose stories we're trying to tell, get feedback from them. That really mattered to me. Um, and then just focus on kind of telling the truth. So it, it, it really, I mean, it really hasn't felt like an experience of quote unquote celebrity at this point. 
Um, and I'm, I'm super grateful for that. I don't know. I mean, I, w- I guess I will say there've been like a couple of like DMS and emails from people where I'm like, Oh my gosh, that they're listening to the show. Wow. That's rad. You know, but that's, <laughs> that's about the extent of it. Yeah. So. so you're saying, okay, so I'm just trying to tell the story and not let the, which sounds real cute. And like, and I don't, I don't want to yeah. make it sound too, but I mean, isn't, you know, too lighthearted and like, Oh man, I'm just trying to, you know, I, but yeah, but it is like a. It, there really was almost this sort of environmental like jig, right? In the sense that, where was I going to go to sort of be treated like a a big deal podcaster, right? Um, you know, with the exception of like some seminary students that go to our church that like were eager to talk to me on Sundays, which is like okay, <laughs> God bless seminary students. Everybody loves but, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I, I guess I'm just kind of getting at like when the audience begins to grow, like do you begin thinking about uh, how how you want to communicate to you know communicating to your audience is an important part of communication. So as that audience grows, how you think about that might change. And so I mean, I'm thinking about like the the one episode that I wouldn't have wanted to do if you had paid me a million bucks is the episode on women's roles at Mars Hill. Because in some ways, I feel like that mm-hmm. is going to frustrate everybody. Um, egalitarians probably felt like you weren't strong enough. And I'm sure that complementarians felt like they were kind of getting this guilty by association, uh, you know, kind of thing pushed on them. So how do you navigate like that catch 22? Because clearly the way that Mark talked about women and sex was a huge part of that story. So you can't avoid that. And yet you also, I mean, you know that there are, there's a lot of diversity in how both egalitarianism and complementarianism mm-hmm. are practiced in, in, in churches. I mean, is that, how did you, how did you think about navigating that reality? Especially knowing that you're doing this from the platform representing the historical evangelical industrial complex that is Christianity <laughs> today. Like in some senses, you're just, you're being a hell of a lot more honest about it coming from that place than, you know, a church, uh, a pastor that's leveraging his church to create a platform. So like, there's a lot more honesty about it, but the, the temptations have got to be the similar, right? Yeah. You're not just t- talking about the abuse of power at Mars Hill, but you're actually stewarding power and how you're talking about, um, mm-hmm. about yeah. that story. No, that, that, I love how you put that. I think that's really, I think that is really well put. And, and we, we definitely felt that. I mean, I would say, I mean, for sure, the episode, um, you know, it's, uh, the title is The Things We Do to Women, um, which is a, a Jed Bartlett quote from the West Wing for anyone who was wondering what that Easter egg was. There's, there's a, that's where that comes from. But um, yeah, I, I think about that episode. I mean, it, it is the most controversial of the episodes. There's part of me sometimes that wonders, like, should we have released the episode of about masculinity and the episode about femininity on the same day or as a single episode even. Um, because I feel like if you, if you listen to one without listening to the other, um, if you listen to them in isolation, you miss, you miss the point because the, the, the message, the message Mark gave to men in many ways was so powerful and empowering and encouraging that it not only like, made men want to be a part of the church. Um, 
it made women want to be a part of the church. It made pastors want to support Mark and, and empower him and move him forward. And so the reason the, the, the episode about women kind of comes into the conversation and hits as hard as it does deliberately hits as hard as it does is because all of this was in plain sight throughout, throughout all, all of these conversations. Um, and so while other evangelical pastors were celebrating what was happening with men at Mars Hill, this stuff is happening with women at Mars Hill. These conversations about women are happening at Mars Hill. And for sure, I mean, one of the most controversial bits, one of the things we heard a lot of feedback about, including a lot of phone calls and texts from my my complementarian friends, was, you know, the inclusion of, uh, you know, our portrayal of Rachel Held Evans in that episode. Um, Rachel and I, um, you know, I don't share her theological perspective on all kinds of issues. Um, and, you know, she and I more than once battled things out on Twitter on one of those horrible sort of Twitter exchange things that would often kind of <laughs> boil up at, at from time to time. <laughs> Nothing good ever came from that. Yeah. But what I, what I wanted to say in that episode and what I wanted to leave for, for listeners was regardless of what you might think, what else you might think about some of the things that she had to say on this issue, she got some things right that a whole lot of people got wrong. Um, and, and I, I'm hoping, and I, I, I think to some extent we were successful. Um, I'm hoping that kind of provoked people to ask, did we make a mistake by sort of circling the wagons in a way that was kind of tribal that allowed us to dismiss some of those critiques when maybe they were more valid and important than um, we acknowledged at the time? It's so interesting. I mean, def- just even talking with pastor friends, I, I felt like there's been so many different takes on that episode in particular. And um, I mean, clearly you did not say complementarianism as a theological position equals abuse. And yet, you know, some people have felt like uh, for somebody who's coming from an egalitarian position, like that's what they heard. And that's coming at some of the way that played out on, on Twitter. Um, And so um, I I guess that's um, kind of behind my question of like, to, to what extent are you thinking about the way that you're the, you're presenting that conversation? Cause I mean, you know, the reality, like you and Brad and I are like the kind of nerds that get it. Like we get into this theological stuff and we understand the ins and the outs of the, of the theological perspectives. And you know, maybe that just doesn't get like the nuance doesn't exist on. Yeah. Twitter. <laughs> the flattening effect of just like everybody able to listen at the same time means that the, it is, it is impossible to, uh, to articulate to just one audience in a sense, but, but, and that is, it's both like a, yeah, I think Bryce, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, like that's a huge responsibility. And also like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that like either of us have like an answer. We, we, we don't have the luxury of, of uh, that. That's, that's the episode I would not have wanted to touch with a 40 foot pole. So. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and it's an, it's an example of, you know, one of several episodes where, when I did go to look at my Twitter mentions, um, it was a mix of some of the most progressive voices in Christian Twitter, um, ex-evangelical Twitter, blowing me up because we didn't, you know, we decentered victims, and you know there was all kinds of language around that. Um, which, which I mean, I, 
I, I'm happy to kind of say in a context like this, like we, we talked to lots of people who had bad, had experiences like those we described on the podcast who were uncomfortable for all kinds of reasons, putting their name and their voice in the story. And yeah. we wouldn't have reported it the way we did um, without a clear confidence in verified stories from women oh, totally. who kind of lived through those experiences. Um, but I also think, you know, with some of those, again, some of those sort of progressive critics of Mars Hill often miss the point that lots of women had very positive experiences at Mars Hill, had redemptive experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what you got for marriage counseling really depended on who your marriage counselor were, was. If you got someone like Phil and Jen Smith to walk you through marriage counseling, you probably had an amazing experience and it was probably mm. incredibly helpful. There are other elders and pastors who were there different seasons of the church where you got something that was much more rigid and much more directly reflective of what you heard from Mark in the pulpit. Um, and it did a lot of damage. Yeah. So, so anyway, so at the same time that we were getting some of those critiques, like we're getting like the MacArthurites <laughs> who hated every episode and every moment of the podcast, <laughs> uh, probably because we didn't make John MacArthur the hero of the podcast. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but we were also getting, you know, we, we were getting critiques from the complementarianism saying, yeah. well, he just hates complementarianism and he hates reform theology and, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm like, where and where and anywhere in the podcast are we criticizing reform theology? Um, Gosh, that, that actually, like, I want to weave together a few of the things that we've been talking about into a question because um, the challenge right now for any institutional leader, especially pastors is like, I can tell you, like, it's, it's almost, it's a joke, um, uh, with, with our own church that how many times I will say, don't hear what I'm not saying. And, and it's because we, t- we actually like put it this interpretive weight onto what is omitted, um, and not just what is committed in terms of what's actually being said. Um, and so with everything that you've been, you, you know, uh, uh, gosh, I'm a, we're, we're both especially geeking out and, and excited to hear uh, there's going to be more content around institutions because um, a huge part of this kind of power miniseries we're doing is trying to understand how to lead an institution in a way that does form and shape people for their good and for the good of their neighbor and the glory of God. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there has been and we can talk about all the reasons why this is a, not just a, a skepticism toward institutions, but like an abject fear of institutions and, and a, and an assumption that to be involved in one at all is actually going to result with your being dehumanized in some way. And mm-hmm. so I guess to, to weave this together into the question, um, you know, we hear from a lot of pastors who are like, Oh my gosh, thank you for actually asking these questions about power because this is the same one I'm, uh, you know, asking and wrestling with, and we've listened to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, and we have a very clear understanding of what not to do. <laughs> but, <Right>. but okay, <laughs> now there's, we, we hear a lot. And I, you know, as someone who, you know, suffered under spiritual abuse myself, like there, it can be so paralyzing when you start to see everything through a lens of abuse. And when you realize that, and, and you've experienced even people using, um, we, we talked to a couple of guys who, who have had your podcast actually weaponized against them, mm-hmm. um, for in ways that were like actually not accurate or fair and didn't represent what you're doing at all. But 
now there's this kind of posture and attitude of a default that um, any pastor is categorically power hungry. That's why he's a pastor and he's guilty until proven innocent. And that's just an impossible standard. So what would you say, gosh, in the midst of that and knowing that, like, (laughs) like you just said, where did I say that? Don't hear what I'm not saying. So like, like how, (laughs) but, but I, I also know you have a ton of empathy for people who are like, in ways that are valid, fearful of that. Mm-hmm. Like just how would you pastorally speak into that, I guess? Yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, I, I wrestle with it a lot. I, you know, I had a conversation with a friend while we were in the midst of producing the podcast. It was, it was kind of towards the, the latter, I don't know, three or four episodes. Um, very good friend, not a lover of what, what I was up to. And, you know, we had a pretty intense conversation and I, I found myself saying, and, and this is not my answer to your question here, so, but it, it should help. <laughs> I found myself saying, like, I feel like there's this knee jerk reaction in all of us when we hear about an abuse story. Um, you know, when we hear about abuse of power, corruption, mm-hmm. whether it's like the Me Too movement or the Church Too movement or, you know, whatever. The knee-jerk reaction is like, well, not all men, right? Like, not all pastors, like, not all whatever. I guess I do, like, I guess I would say, like, I do think there is, like, a first step where we all need to say, okay, can we, can we have an openness when people come to us with anger and concerns and criticism and attacks? Can we have an openness to engaging those conversations um, with a, with a humility and gentleness that we might not have otherwise? Um, one of the things that I think a lot of like pastoral literature about pastoral authority and what it means to be an elder and, and all of that, a lot of the stuff that I was trained under from, from my own development as a pastor in the early 2000s was pretty darn authoritarian and was pretty leaned towards this, I think had a formative effect to kind of shape you towards a posture of you're the shepherd, they're the sheep you know, um, sheep bite, you know, be, beware of, you know, the fact that people are going to be divisive and, you know, come after you and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I do think there are some presumptions we have to be really careful about. Um, at the same time, I think, um, I, I, I totally agree I, that I, I don't, I think most pastors are in it because they care about their congregations. They love their churches. Um, I hope they are. Maybe the, maybe maybe the way to think about this is like, hey, what if what if we take as a collective evangelical movement a season of like prayer of examine to go to to ask ourselves, hey, are we in are we in this for the right reasons? Did we become pastors because because we want to help you know people to prepare for their encounters with death, or did we become pastors because there's all these exciting ways to gather a crowd and broadcast ourselves? You know, one of the things that is makes being a pastor really hard, as you know, is that we wear these hats that are both as a shepherd and also as a sheep um, being formed and shaped and cared for by the great shepherd. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's funny, <laughs> Bryce and I did not uh, start this podcast uh, for the sake of celebrity, um, and that is still bearing fruit in the number of listeners we have per episode. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I will say, like we we did we 
this has been um, the product and the result of like us trying to wrestle with the paradox of, okay, on the one hand, agree with everything you're saying about having a season of lament and mm-hmm. self-examination and repentance. Um, and it was actually like having gone through and been spiritually abused for a period of like two years um, in, in my first role as a pastor where uh, I have a profound appreciation for that. And I think, I mean, there are probably, I, I imagine may, much of the DMs you get are uh, are those pastors who need an emphasis on that. Um, I think that there are also this other audience of pastors who, uh, whether they've experienced it or not, they've walked through it with people and and are trying to understand what do I do with these two realities? One, that abuse is real and I we are not going to rush past this. We're not going to do that. But at the same time, the reason that abuse happened is in part because we were we have syncretistically discipled people unto individualism um, and platform and celebrity and everything we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. But to like not go toward, Hey, I know this is hard and you trust in faith. Like now I'll say, by the way, to someone who has actually been spiritually abused, you, it's going to be a while before you should say something like that. Right. But when, when there is a a kind of an atmosphere and a culture of, of hypervigilance around it, we can inadvertently spiritually neglect people instead of spiritually flourish them as a reaction to spiritual abuse. And I think, I, yeah. I think, yeah, I just want like maybe hypothetically, let's say the pastor that you described has gone through all that now at what point, like what does that look like? How do, how do pastors lead in the midst of that with a gentle, gracious, I'm going to go there first and you can crucify me, but I will pray from the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do and still point mm-hmm. you to the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what do you say to the people who like, um, maybe they are not themselves the victims of spiritual abuse, but are hypervigilant in that way? Mm-hmm. How, do, how do we come together and not have and not perpetuate the division between sheep and shepherd that that results with abuse? I love every every element. I love the way you frame the whole question. I think it's um, I think it's well spoken. Um, Please give us I think an there answer. are a few, like a couple of ways. What's that? I said, please give us an answer. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, that's me teeing up to change the subject. Yeah, um, well done. Great no, question, I, podcaster. <laughs> no, you know, there's um, Watchman Nee has a book on spiritual authority. You know, the the, mm. the the missionary, and he has this he has this interesting passage where he talks about what do you do when people attack you. Um, and the example he points to is is Moses, when the Israelites, you know, send send leaders who are the Israelites are grumbling. They send leaders and they accuse Moses. Um, they challenge his leadership, and you know Moses' response is to basically turn his back on them, fall on his knees, and plead his case before God. Hmm. You know, God, will you defend me? Hmm. Um, will you? You know, and then you know. God would often open up the earth and swallow the, the, the criticizers. Now, but here's the thing. And I think this is that the would solve between, one problem. Well, I was going to say, but here's the thing. Yeah. The difference between that and the knee jerk reaction that I think is so dangerous is that Moses is putting himself in the hands of God for God to be his defender. Hmm. 
That's good. And mm. I think what we want is, and I think I think there's some like, not to get all Char- Charles Taylor here, right? But to get a little Charles Taylor here for a second. No, no. You this, full is safe, this, this is Charles is, Taylor's safe space. This is, go for it. Absolutely. This is a safe space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so part of what i'm convinced is a, a massive factor in this whole story is is the 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 reality of like a second living in a secular age you know the the end of transcendence um it it plays a part on the behalf of the congregations who are looking for transcendent experience and they they don't necessarily have it in and of themselves but maybe they can experience it vicariously through somebody who's standing on the, t- the stage and saying, I heard from God and this is what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. And if you give me money and follow my lead, you're, you will too. But I think it's, it's mm-hmm. true on the other side of the equation as well. Pastors are just as prone to sort of having a secularized imagination as well, which puts them in the position where they don't have confidence that God is going to, uh, fulfill his promises that are given through his word in terms of the way he works. So rather than trust word, table, sacrament, you know, mu- the, 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 the hymns of the church to do their formative and transformative work, we look for hype, spectacle, noise. How can I make their pulse, you know, accelerate and, and everything else? Similar with the way we handle conflict in the church, right? Like what's my technique? Um, to manage conflict in the church so that I know that, that I come out okay and the church comes out okay. And maybe these people that are accusing me come out okay, as opposed to what's, what's a confident, faithful response turning as Moses did to the face of God and saying, I'm being falsely accused here. Will you defend me? That's a lot more fearful. Again, it sounds glib, but are we, are we willing to embrace a posture of sort of prayerful confidence in, in a God who not only cares for these people who've come to us, but cares for us as pastors as well? Man, that's 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 really beautiful. That, 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 there's nothing glib about that response uh, to me because, <laughs> I, I mean, I think what you're saying is we fundamentally have to make a decision about are we going to live like the gospel is actually true um, in all circumstances or are we or are we not? Um, so I, gosh, I love that you just said that I I'm curious about, I mean, what was maybe the most surprising thing or how have you changed as a result of this podcast yeah. and telling this story? Gosh, what was the most surprising thing? Um, you know, I, I'll say <laughs> this for sure. Like I did not start telling this story expecting, um, media to be as central to it as it was. Um, I, I knew that it would have an important role because of the fact that so much of what, what mattered about Mark's story were kind of was on tape, right. And was available in that sense. But the degree to which he was, um, sort of made the, the, the figure that he was by the power of his media team. Um, you know, I, I wasn't prepared for that. That was a surprise and understanding that really shaped the way we told the story. So last question, what, what's next? I mean, take over the world. Where, where do you go from here? Yeah. Like you, you just uh, basically were the MVP of the world series during your work rookie season uh, with all eyes on you. How right. you, you've got nowhere else to go, but down, right? Yeah. That's my, that's my expectation. Um, absolutely. 
Um, but no, seriously. It's funny. I, I, I really don't know. Like, I, I really don't. Um, uh, I'll, I'll say, I'll say a couple things. We, we have several ideas for like the next podcast. Um, and in terms of, we're, we're doing some research right now. Our team is doing some research right now to kind of narrow down um, what feels like the next thing, the, the next right fit. Um, I'm excited about some other stuff that's coming from CT Podcast, stuff we're not quite ready to announce, but that are that are on their way um, that we think will be, you know, out late winter, early spring. And um, yeah, very excited about all of that. Um, but yeah, I, there's... There is that phenomenon. I mean, it's it's a it's a I, I've, the metaphor I keep using with people is it's like the, you know, the the band that comes out with like the first the, the great first record, and then like <laughs> everybody's like eager for the second record. Yeah, and yeah. The second record sucks. Yeah, exactly. The sophomore slump. Um, well, no, I mean, maybe another different way to ask the question more personally is like, you know, as Bryce and I jumped into this, the first, you know, kind of uh, thing that we started asking questions about is like, how is the pandemic going to change things? And we very quickly, like two months in, we're like, oh, my God, individualism is why we're all reacting like crazy people. Um, and then from there, we just kept following the thread to institutions and now power. And so, like, what as a result of the Mars Hill podcast, what's the thread that you're like, OK, this is the question I didn't have before that I now want to pursue and and learn or understand more about whether that is a, like becomes a podcast or not, but just like personally for you as a result of doing all that work. I'll put it this way. Like since my, my first mentor, um, my first real pastor in my life, um, when I was, a when I was a teenager was, was a guy named Mike Frazier. Um, he's still pastoring. He's at a, a church in Savannah now. You know, one of, one of the first things he ever did for me was he, um, um, he handed me a book called In Search of Guidance by Dallas Willard. And uh, it was re-released years later as Hearing God um, by Willard. And it, it started me on this track where I would say like the first five, seven years of, of kind of my faith were really immersed in the world of um, kind of spiritual formation literature. Willard, Richard Foster, um, you know, lots of Thomas Merton. Um, I'm from Kentucky. Like if, if, if you like reading and you're a believer and you live in Kentucky, you have to love Thomas Merton, <laughs> regardless of denomination or, or anything. All right. Um, but anyway, <laughs> all that to say, I, I just find myself coming in, in the last year, I find myself coming back to that stuff um, with like a thirst that I haven't had before. Hmm. Like I want, you know, for myself and, and for the church, I, there's a guy named Rich Plass who says this, and, and I think this is the, the deal. He says, the most important thing um, we have to offer in our ministries is our transformed and transforming presence. Um, mm. So, you know, regardless of whether or not I become a pastor again, um, or if I, I focus on journalism and storytelling for the rest of my life, I know that as a Christian, I want to embrace that. And through the stories that I, I hope I get to tell in the years ahead, like that's what I'd love to really be zeroed in on and, and focused on how can we help the church do the kinds of examination that it needs to do um, and equip the church um, to look more like Jesus and, and to carry that transformed presence into, you know, communities, relationships in earthy, ordinary, unspectacular ways. That is beautiful. That is awesome. 
That's that's fantastic. Mike, thanks so much for uh, your work on this podcast and thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. We really appreciate talking with you. Yeah, I appreciate both of you all. I've, I've enjoyed this podcast. So thanks for taking the time to make it and having me on. Thank you. All right, man, that was a fun jaunt down the rabbit hole. I feel like the further we went, the more we were circling around like, yeah, these are absolutely the questions that we've got to answer and figure out how to prevent the cycle that we're, we're stuck in. So uh, in the midst of all that, Bryce, like what, what changed for you? Man, I got to say, I think that's one of my favorite conversations we've had on the podcast because you know, I have to admit that listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, there was part of me, gosh, like I understand and agree and affirm everything um, Mike is kind of bringing to light in that podcast. And yet there's also part of me that's kind of like uh, going like, you know, the cringe factor on like one abusive pastor is not the whole story here. And I really... I don't love seeing the church kind of dragged through the mud. And it was great to talk with Mike and just, you know, what were you thinking? <laughs> what was your approach on some of these things? I, I loved what he kind of shared at the end about, you know, the, the solution here is is essentially putting yourself in God's hands. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, it's much clearer uh, to me, even just after this conversation that a lot of what, Mike is doing in this podcast is kind of pushing back on the idea that like, these are not things that we should discuss and there's nothing really to see here. Right. The the solution is not, you know, the the solution is not to ignore the problem, nor is, is it to say everybody in a position of power or authority is therefore an abuser. But the, the solution here really is that we have to be following through on what we're actually teaching people week in and week out, which is that our lives are in God's hands and he is the source of our life and we entrust ourselves to him. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? What's uh, what just changed for you? You know, I think I was hoping for more answers, (laughs) 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 right? Like, uh, but, but I'm, I'm strangely okay with the lack thereof because I, I think you know, his honesty around like, man, that's a great question. I don't, I have no idea was, was actually really validating. Um, because, and, and I think this gets a little bit of what you're, you're talking about is if we, if we have done anything in this, in this podcast, uh, you know, everything just changed. Uh, we have realized and kind of brought out and described and explored, uh, the problem of individualism within the church. Mm-hmm. And within society as a whole, and how problematic that is, and the solution is a uh, you know flourishing institutions where the individual among the collective is grown, shaped, formed, and made to be more Christ-like in the church and more in the image of God outside the church. And the 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 paradox of this of the rise and fall of Mars Hill is that okay, the the thing that is making the solution flourishing institutions harder um, is, is very much a distrust of institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and this podcast, uh, his podcast is kind of giving more evidence and data points for the distrust of institutions. Mm-hmm. And yet the way that we restore trust in institutions is actually to repent and expose the, the, the things mm-hmm. that need repenting and exposing. 
And so I think maybe even like my, my thing that changed is the same thing that yours has changed is like the only way to uh, actually move forward in hope is if we do put ourselves in God's hands and the church in God's hands to be faithful to her, because mm-hmm. the only way that paradox is resolved is with the gospel and with grace, uh, because that's the only way that exposing the dirty laundry and airing it is actually is actually a good thing, um, because it provides opportunity for repentance. And that is, man, it's one thing to like do that personally. It's a it's a whole nother thing to do that like writ large, like it's happening to the entire kind of white evangelical church as a whole. And that is, whew, it's a good thing we have a big God. Yeah, it's just like Ted Lasso said, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. Ah, the gospel of Ted Lasso. (laughs) (laughs) So what changed for you after listening to this conversation? Do you see the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast in a different light? Let us know on our Facebook group. It's linked in the show notes below. Thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be off next week, but we'll be back after that. We've got a few more episodes before we wrap up this series on power. And we would love to hear from you. What questions are you asking about power? What have we missed? Let us know in the Facebook group. Everything Just Changed is edited by Nathan Michelle. Our logo and theme music are by Danny Rankin. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. We'll talk to you soon right here on Everything Just Changed. Thank you.